What a precious truth for us to remember and to sing about and to believe. A great song with a great history. Well, some of you have already messed me up here this morning. You're not sitting in your assigned seat. So uh, you, don't, you don't do that to a new preacher. A couple of you, I got you figured out after the first couple of weeks, and now you've done switched on me. So uh, thank you for your uh, patience and long-suffering. Is, uh, my family and I are doing our best to remember a bunch of names. So uh, you know what they teach you in seminary. If you, you forget someone's name, you just call them brother or sister. And so if you, uh, you know the secret now. So go, hey, brother, it's good to see you. It's not insincere. It's just a uh, moment of temporary amnesia. One of the things we had better not forget is the reason that we gather together. We have a great God, and He has given us an awesome word that we have a chance to study. And as we have had the opportunity over these last several weeks to journey through uh, John's first letter, he started off on a, a really specific note to tell us that we can have great confidence in the message of the gospel and that we can trust the message of the gospel, that it changes lives, that it is powerful and that it's dynamic. And then very quickly, he, he, he transitions from talking about kind of the objective truth of the scripture to talking about how the gospel impacts everyday life. And for the life of me, I wonder why our churches don't allow the gospel to impact everyday living. It it seems like the gospel is a one day in seven message in a lot of Christians' lives. Instead of a message that is pertinent, practical, relevant, and powerful in everyday life. As we've noted, John's conception of fellowship that can only come through the gospel is much more robust than our typical decaffeinated variety. And so there's a problem that we immediately encounter in John's letter and in our own experience. Not everyone who claims to have fellowship is actually fellowshipping. And there are two problems that we encounter at this point. Number one, one of the things that we've talked about is it's very typical to socialize and call it fellowship. We're not fellowshipping. We're watching Monday night football with Christians. So having a picnic with your Sunday school class, is that fellowship? It could be. But more typically, it's probably not. It's socializing. But there's a deeper an even more insidious problem with fellowship. Instead of just watering it down to simply being socializing, we have created a class of Christianity in the United States where it is okay to be a disobedient Christian. To not obey God, but still name the name of Christ. To claim to have fellowship with God because you dress up nice on Sunday And it's your tradition to not miss church, but in your heart to never honor Christ as Lord. Oh, brothers and sisters, that is not the way that it's supposed to be. As a matter of fact, one of the contemporary issues that John dealt with in the writing of this letter was mass numbers of people that were making their exodus from the church to a new thing. And the question that John's people had to ask is, are those folks still in fellowship with us? Do they still believe the same things? And this is more than just a social idea. We don't gather together anymore, so does that mean we're not in fellowship? John's asking, 
if these people that left were even believers in the first place. They had proven themselves disobedient. Could we still refer to them as Christians? So in the remainder of this book, John seeks to lay out for all of us very clear and specific ways in which we can evaluate ourselves, and dare I even say others, when it comes to their claim to fellowship with God. And an important truth for us to remember very early in this entire discussion is that profession, claiming it with your mouth, professing to have Christ, does not equal possession. Profession does not equal possession. So look with me in your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Through the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John says this, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now you see that John starts this passage in verse 3 with a, by this we know. He's trying to eliminate any doubt, and he's trying to teach us a very important truth. It is entirely possible to have certainty that you're in a relationship with God. Now, just imagine a conversation with somebody at the next table at McDonald's. And you just, you're bold, and you happen to turn the topic of the conversation about, uh, around to knowing that you have a relationship with God. Doesn't it sound audacious to say that we can have certainty that we're in a right relationship with God? It does. That's a big claim. But John says, by this we know that we know Him. He's trying to say, it is, you don't have to guess you can know, indeed, that you're in a relationship with God. And we've already stated that false assurance, there are people who think that they're in relationship with God, uh, but are not. And so as we think through this issue of having assurance, it really requires a bit of honest self-evaluation. And the first point is this. This is what John is trying to say. We know we are Christians when we have a desire to and actually do obey. Now, obedience just sounds, uh, maybe this is just me, to our ears like a dirty word. Obey! Sounds like you're talking to a little one, isn't it? You expect that when you're talking to a three or four-year-old or to your dog. We don't mind telling our dog to obey. If he doesn't obey, kick him. Obey! Get the stick! You know, play dead! It's the same word for us. Jesus tells us to obey. And what John has done right here, through his book, like a cord of many strands, like a rope that is braided together, John puts together these tests of eternal life. And he says, if you want to know that you're in a right relationship with God, ask yourself this question. How is your obedience? How is your obedience? Now, one of the reasons we have confession, we have to have confession. Anybody not sin this week? Did any of you think 
you have a right to come before God without confessing your sin? Absolutely not. Matter of fact, our confession should probably take up more time of our service. I can't confess all of my inadequacies in three minutes. As we think through this, this issue of obedience is a big one. And it, it may sound like, kind of like a scratch your head. Well, duh. You see the problem that John was facing. There were people who were saying that you could be in right relationship to God with no intention to obey Him. And so John, in this passage, gives us a couple cues to what they're saying. He says, uh, let's see, verse 4, the one who says, verse 6, the one who says, uh, verse 9, the one who says, he's pulling out their own things, their own little slogans, saying, you know what, we can be okay with God and we don't have to obey Him. We can be okay with God and not walk as Jesus walked. We can be okay with God and not confess our sins. John says, no. In contrast to their statement, the one who says, the one who says, the one who says, he says, it's not that. By this, we know. Don't listen to them. Listen to me. By this, we know and we can have certainty. And so John is really trying to draw a noose around this truth and provide us with uh, certain assurance that if we are obeying Christ, we can have confidence in our relationship with God. Now, before you think that the Apostle John has kind of run off on his own tangent, and he's talking to us like he's training a dog, I want you to remember the words of Jesus Christ himself. In John chapter 13, I'm sorry, John chapter 14, verse 15, he says this, If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. There's not a lot of fill-in-the-blank right there. It's not, if you love me, choose whatever you want is easiest for you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's kind of a strong word. You will obey what I tell you. If our kids would learn it, we'd be happy. We'd be thrilled. Don't you wonder how God wishes His children would respond to Him in obedience? It's so easy for moms and dads to make jokes about how their kids act up. I'm glad that God doesn't make jokes about us. It's very important for us to emphasize very clearly here at this point that while obedience is essential to the Christian life, our obedience does not earn our salvation. You cannot be good enough to earn God's favor. But in a very real sense, it does provide evidence of our salvation. If you had a friend who at every opportunity sought to disobey every command that God had ever given but claimed to be a Christian, now I know it's politically incorrect, you know, well, we're, we're not supposed to judge. Be honest, wouldn't you have some doubts? Don't be politically correct in church, be biblically correct. And just go, wouldn't that give you some doubts if they, if they were consistently and constantly disobeying God. But when God comes into your heart and changes your ambitions, your desires, your hopes, and your dreams, our obedience becomes evidence that God has done something. So our obedience doesn't earn our salvation, but it is evidence of our salvation. Perhaps to put it another way, obedience is not a prerequisite, but it is proof. It's proof. We make the gospel word more real when we take our obedience to the Lord seriously. 
So we think through this passage, what, what are we to obey? Well, we've already seen one of the words in verse 3. He says we're to keep his commandments. But he uses another word. If you look down here in verse oh, 5, we keep his commandments in verse 3. But in verse 5, whoever keeps his word. Where do you find his commandments? In his word. He's communicating the same thing. We obey God's commands, which are found in God's word. Now, we could list out a full page of benefits to having a regular diet of being in God's word. Some of you, around January 1st, make a very short-lived resolution to eat more healthy. And then you come to potluck, and you see the dessert table. And that New Year's resolution goes out the window. Oh, yeah, the triple chocolate espresso cheesecake. I know I don't need it, but God, you have provided it today. (laughs) We could list a whole long benefit to having a healthy diet in God's Word. We, We could pull out a sheet, and I'm sure we could fill up the whole page. But look at what John has to say here specifically about the benefits of being in God's Word. Verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Notice that he says the Christian who obeys God's Word doesn't know about God, isn't merely acquainted with God. It says what? We know God. Allow that that phrase to to break over you with all of the audacity that it has there. So the first benefit to being in God's word is that we know him. But secondly, and no less astounding, look at verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Consider this. Christians who are obedient from the heart have a sense of the love of God that a disobedient Christian will never know. If you have ever wondered, why does that person have so much joy and I'm such a grouch, I guarantee you one of the things is they probably obey better. If you're a grouch, guess what you're not doing? You're not obeying. You're not putting on the fruit of the Spirit. You're not putting on the armor of God. You're allowing a bad night's rest to determine your outlook on life. And so when we obey God... We have a sense in which God's, God's love is perfected in our life because we are doing what God has said we should do. And so this reminds us that it is certainly not all about us. While we want to put a, um, we want to strike the note that Christians are to obey, how do we obey? By His Spirit. Is anybody here in their own power capable of obeying God? outwardly. But listen, you can even do the right thing for the wrong motivation. I remember being an RA and uh, getting pins and patches for memorizing all those scripture verses. Um, I didn't really want to memorize scripture. I just want to look like General Schwarzkopf. Yeah, I just wanted, <laughs> boom, you know, my, my shirt weighed 15 pounds, you know. And so this is horrible to admit, but even as a kid in church, I had learned very well how to be a Pharisee. Not because my teacher's, my teacher's motivations were pure. Mine weren't. Listen, if, if, I can get, if, if I can get patted on the back and said, you're a good kid, you're awesome, and I get pins and I get the... It's like my brag sheet. You know, I was carrying my trophies around on my shirt. I was doing the right thing. I was doing it for the wrong motivation. 
I had a testimony from a person at church that would put a blank, he would cut a piece of paper to look like a check, fold it in half, put in the offering plate. Why? He didn't want to look like he wasn't tithing. So he wanted the accolades of other people without the obedience. It's horrible. That's horrible. And so we have to remember, while we are to obey, we are to commit ourselves to the hard work of obeying, it is God perfecting his love in us that is really the best motivation for our obedience. And so John provides the necessary evidence to the contrary. He says in verse 4, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Please notice what John says about the person who doesn't obey. He doesn't say he's deceived. Well, some, some bad preacher came along and he's, he's, just, he's listening hook, line, and sinker to what that preacher's saying. He's not deceived. He's not confused. He is what? A liar. And here's why this is true. Friend, if you are here today and you name the name of Christ and you are not obeying, you know that you should. You know that you should. For whatever reason, your you're want to and your should just aren't, or you're at, what you're actually living and what you know you're living are just not matching up. Disobedient Christians are the most miserable people on the planet because they know that they should live higher than they are and they're not. The disobedient prove by their disobedience, this is tough, that they don't know God. They don't know God. Remember, by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. If we do not keep His commandments, we cannot say that we know God clearly. So John starts with a positive example in verse 3. We know Him by keeping His commandments. He moves to a negative example in verse 4. Those who say, I've come to know Him, but don't keep His commandments are liars. And then he moves on to another positive example in verse 5 and 6. And he basically concludes by saying in verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. I love this. Because John kind of hits us with thunder, and now he kind of gives us the gentle stream. He says, obey his commandments. That just sounds rough to our ears. But in verse 6, when he comes back, he says, listen, you're not following another personality. You're not following a pastor. You're not following other Christians. You're not following church tradition. Who are you following? You're following Jesus. So if you don't like the commandment language, obey my commandments. Listen to verse 6. Walk as he walked. Follow Jesus. Some people are a little more black and white. They need it laid down. They need it scheduled. They need it on their calendar. Obey my commandments. Other people, they need it a little more gentle. Just walk as he walked. So whether you, you need smacked in the face or kicked in the tail, John provides a little bit of both today. He says, obey, walk as Jesus walked. Christians know God through his word, and we are known by our obedience to that word. And the truth of the matter is that true, true love for God and true fellowship with God is not best expressed through sentimental language. Oh, I, I love you, Lord. It's not expressed through a mystical experience. Can you believe what happened to me? I wasn't even thinking about God this morning, and boom, it just happened. True love and fellowship with God is not proven through sentimental language or mystical experience, but best through obedience. Stop praying for a miracle and just obey God. 
If you want to know God, quit asking for him to write something in the sky and just do what he's already clearly revealed in his word. So if we are to walk as Jesus walked, we have to ask ourselves the question, how did Jesus conduct himself during his incarnation? And John tells us in uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, that Jesus was best characterized as love personified. Read with me. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now John starts these series of verses off with a strange lesson about old and new commandments. But what is John's point here? John's point is that we know we are Christians by living out a supernatural love for the brethren. Not gender-inclusive language. Sorry about that. The brethren means brothers and sisters in Christ. And we don't want our love for each other simply to just be, be, we're familiar with each other because we gather 52 Sundays out of the year. It's not just the love of familiarity. It's the love of sacrifice. It's the love of sacrifice. We want our love for each other to speak loudly of the reality of the gospel. We don't want it to be explained in the same way that members of the Kiwanis Club love each other. Our love is different. Our love should be supernatural. And so we ask, how is this an old command? Well, it's very clear. In Leviticus 19.18, Jesus says, you are to love your neighbor. He says it. That is in the Old Testament. For whatever reason, we tend to think of the Old Testament as a book of hate and the New Testament as a book of love. That's not accurate at all. Read the Old Testament. Read the law. It says you are specifically supposed to care for people. You remember the story of Ruth. Uh, Comes back to Jerusalem after a time of... um, famine, and she is cared for because there were specific laws to care for the foreigner among you. The Old Testament was a book of love. But it is new in a variety of ways. You remember Jesus actually referred to loving God and loving neighbor as what? The summary of the law and the prophets. So Jesus said the Old Testament's a book of love. But this commandment that John is giving to love is a new commandment too. It's new in emphasis. John 13, 34 and 35, God's word says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Despite the fact that the Old Testament was a book of love, Jesus felt the uh, need to say specifically to his disciples, I need you to love each other not by some rote principle, but just like I have loved you guys. It's new in its emphasis. It's new in its quality. Jesus' love was radical. He paid the ultimate price by sacrificing himself. Love finds its clearest expression in God. It's new in its extent. While the Old Testament implied that love for neighbor meant that you love your enemy, the Jews had come up with a great code for not loving people that weren't like them. When Jesus comes, you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? He's saying, don't just love people who are like you. Love the people that, in your opinion, are the most unlovable. So it's new, but it's old. And here's some gracious news for us. 
This is what's great about the way John deals with this. <clears throat> we referred back to Jesus' words that the world will know that we are his followers. How? If we love one another. Here's the great news for you. Not only will the world know evangelistically that we are Jesus' followers if we follow him, but the practical benefit for you is you will know you're his follower if you show love for each other. It doesn't just, God's love finding its way in our lives doesn't just have a testimony to the world. It has a testimony to our own souls that we are the children of God if we are allowing that kind of love to be expressed in our lives. The truth is that love can never exist unexpressed. If you love your wife, husbands, wives, listen up close, okay? If you love your wife, you love your spouse, you're going to buy her flowers at least a couple times a year, a month. <laughs> we'll have another prayer confession here in just a second. <laughs> if you love your kids, listen, mom and dad, if you got little ones, have you ever kind of went, hmm, it'd be nice to kind of spend money on myself sometime in the future? Well, then you got college to worry about, you know. It's just not going to happen. But you don't sit there and go, man, I'm spending all this money on my kids. Why? You love to do it. You love your kids. And yet when we come to church, we say, well, yeah, I, 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 I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can't marshal one iota of evidence to actually prove it. We make love so amorphous and vague. We love people. How? How are you serving your church? How are you caring for your brothers and sisters? How are you supporting financially the ministry of the church? How are you making the name of Northside, not for Northside's sake, but for God's glory, more well-known in the community? You cannot love, love cannot exist unexpressed. You might be tempted to say, I don't, I don't actually hate anyone. I'm a Southern belle. I'm a Southern gentleman. Hate just doesn't roll off my lips. When John talks about hating someone, he talks about not showing active love. So if you say, I don't, I don't hate anybody, I'm not actively opposed to anyone, he said, no, no, no. Let's change the scorecard just a little bit. Who have you this morning actively shown love to? Who have you deferred to? Who have you been kind to? Uh, gentlemen, what, what ladies here at the church have you held the door for? Um, what kids have you helped to the bathroom? Um, how many diapers have you changed? How have you sung with gusto? How have you expressed love this morning? Because everyone in this room that you have not actively expressed love to, you have expressed hatred to by your apathy. Boy, that's a difficult word. And we don't need to come to church. <coughs> Excuse me. We don't need to come to church with a tally card of, all right, first row, got them. Second row, got them. Because love is not legalistic. The point is not that we need to love every single person here in the exact same way. No, that's not it. But there should be an attitude in our heart where that kind of love just characterizes who we are. That we want to love everyone, even if we don't get a chance to talk to everyone this morning. Wouldn't that be an What a testimony. I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. A church that really understands the love of God and manifests it in all of its glory never needs to do evangelism. We would lock the doors and people would be breaking in through the windows. When God's love is active and vital in a congregation, evangelism just flows out. It just happens because when, when we have God's love, we just allow it to be expressed 
and there's no program. There's nobody calling you saying, hey, you need to show up. It's Tuesday night visitation night. It just, it happens when God's love is powerful there. So to make his point clear that we, we know, the world will know we are Christians by our love, but we will know we are Christians by our love. He makes the point even more clear here. And he enters into a really strange passage here in verses 12 through 14. He says this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Why does he enter into this really strange and enigmatic passage where he says, kids, fathers, young men. Kids, fathers, young men. It shows that the Apostle John was probably a Southern Baptist. He liked to repeat himself. Um, there's, there's stuff here. He finishes this conversation about us showing love for each other, and then he shows us what a congregation actually looks like. And here's the point. A congregation that is fulfilling God's purposes does not look like you individually. It's diverse. Senior adults, you cannot say this is the way a church should look because you know what you will do? Senior adults will default to doing church the way how? Senior adults like to do church. Middle-aged people, you cannot say this is the way that we do church because what will you do? He will, he will make church look like what you want it to look like. The number one metaphor that's used of a church in the New Testament is that we are a family. And any, I don't know about you, but when you go to a family reunion, you've got the matriarch of the patriarch of the family, but you also got what? All the little ankle biters running around. That's a family. And John's saying here, there are different characteristics of spiritual maturity. This has nothing explicitly to do with chronological age as much as it has to do with spiritual, spiritual maturity. Why does he call them children? Well, look how he describes the children. In verse 12, I've written to you children because your sins have been forgiven you. They don't know a lot of systematic theology. They don't have all the RA pins. But you know what they know? They know that Jesus has forgiven me. They've got a childlike understanding of the gospel. Verse 13, I'm writing to you, children, why? Because you know the Father. It's the very first thing that you do as a Christian. You acknowledge that Abba, Father, God is yours. Then he jumps uh, from talking to children to talking about fathers. What does he say about fathers? He says, uh, fathers, um, verse 13, I am writing to you because you know him who has been from the beginning. Verse 14, I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. He repeats it. They don't just know that God forgives them and that God is their father. What's the phrase that they've added? They don't just know him. They know him who has been from the beginning. He's preexistent. The, the fathers, the spiritual fathers of the congregation, they know a little bit more than Jesus loves me, this I know. They, they can teach. They can explain to the children how to become young men and how to grow up into fatherhood. And then he talks about young men. Verse 13, I have written to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Verse 14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome 
the evil one. It's very interesting to me, uh, the order. In both sets of um, instruction, he starts with the children, the youngest, then he does what? Jumps to the oldest, and where does he end up? On the young men. So we know one thing. John is not going chronologically, is he? For whatever reason, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John puts the most press on the young men of the church. Now, why? He says clearly, because you are strong. Because the Word of God lives in you. And he says twice, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, we all know this, maybe not biblically, but we know this from our own experience. If our country was to go to war, raise your hand if you would be ineligible for the draft. Raise your hand. Yeah, Craig, you would be ineligible for the draft. (laughs) If our country went to war today, how many of you would be eligible for the draft? Raise your hand. Um, I'm not the math person here, but the people that can fight for our church are a heck of a lot less than the people who can't. Our country acknowledges that there is a window of opportunity in which the young men will defend the elderly, the women, and the children. We, We understand that nationally. We don't understand it spiritually. And I don't want to go to meddling here too much at this point. It just seems clear from the show of hands that spiritually speaking, this church needs more young men to fight for it. And friends, that that is a huge implication of where God needs to lead us for the future. we, We don't just need young men. We need young men in whom the word of God is powerful. Not because the young men are strong. They're strong because of God's word. But what is What does it say happens when a young man is strong in the word of the Lord? He overcomes the evil one. So friends, we need to pray. We need to plan. We need to organize, according to the apostle, for young men to be here. And all God's single ladies said, Amen. (laughs) I just ask you this. When John talks about love, And we look at how he talks about what a faith family looks like. And we look at our congregation and where perhaps we need to go in the future. Are you okay with that? Because remember, one of the things that's really difficult about a church is to be a multi-generational church. Now, we've also said if we're a faith family, we should have all ages. And so one of the things that's great, when the love of God is operating in a church the way that it's supposed to, young men are going to do what? They're going to respect and they're going to defer the fathers. Now, fathers are older spiritually. You know, when you think of the young men, it doesn't hurt to think of chronological age. You know, and I heard something here just the other day that I thought was relatively amazing. We have a man in this congregation this very day, one of the fathers of this church who has a birthday. And I couldn't believe it, but I actually heard he's older than Larry Gregory. 
So David, happy birthday. <clears throat> but the, the point is this, and I, I, I conclude with this. When the love of God... Sorry, Larry. <laughs> I'm not. I lied. I, I shouldn't have said that. <clears throat> I'm not sorry. Um, when, when the love of God is active in a church, transitioning a church is a peaceful process. When the love of God is not active in a church, then any change you make is going to be a battle. And so what is important to me as your pastor is that we make sure we stay a faith family. And that our old people lead the charge for saying, how do we reach the young men? And that our young men say, I want to respect the heritage and the legacy of our senior adults. And as we hold those tensions together, we find the right way to be the church that God wants us to be and to plot the right course without going off crazy in some strange direction. We serve a great God. And this great God asks us to obey, to follow his example. And his example is chiefly one of what? Of love. So I ask you this question. Are you loving your faith family today? Or are you neglecting them? And when John says you neglect them, you hate them. Oh, may that never be true of us. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your word this morning, and we pray that your word uh, just gets into the cracks and the crevices of our heart and exposes our own selfishness, exposes our own control issues, that, that you will just allow your love to permeate every essence of our being, and that as your people who are gathered here, members of Northside Baptist Church, that love will be our charter for how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, that as members, people committed to this faith family, that we will draw into our congregation, uh, that we will be excited to receive new additions to the family. And so Lord, this morning as we pray and as we move into this time of response, uh, I pray specifically that if we need to repent of ways that we have not shown love to our brothers and sisters, that this altar would be open for us to pray. Lord, even more so, for those that are gathered with us in worship this morning who are not members of this faith family, Lord, we, uh, you never have to guess who's in your family. You know who's in or who's out. With churches, it's a little bit different. Sometimes we get folks that hang around that just never really commit to being a part of the family. If there are people here this morning that say, yes, I want to be a part of a church that wants to love God, that wants to love all the people that you're going to bring us. I pray that you'd encourage this congregation this morning by bringing new folks into our fellowship. So Lord, have your way as you work among us and as we sing this song of response in Jesus' name. Amen.